populations from the average ones. Those individuals were then extensively interviewed and tested, and their competencies were methodically compared to identify those that distinguished star performers. Whichever method was used, this process resulted in lists of ingredients for highly effective leaders. The lists usually ranged in length from a handful to up to 15 or so competencies, such as initiative, collaboration, and empathy. Analyzing all the data from hundreds of competence models yielded dramatic results. To be sure, intellect was to some extent a driver of outstanding performance. Cognitive skills such as big-picture thinking and long-term vision were particularly important. But calculating the ratio of technical skills and purely cognitive abilities, some of which are surrogates for aspects of intelligence quotient or IQ, to emotional intelligence in the ingredients that distinguished outstanding leaders, revealed that EI-based competencies played an increasingly important role at higher levels of organizations where differences in technical skills are of negligible importance. In other words, the higher the rank of those considered star performers, the more EI competencies emerged as the reason for their effectiveness. When the comparison matched star performers against average ones in senior leadership positions, about 85% of the difference in their profiles was attributable to emotional intelligence factors, rather than to purely cognitive abilities like technical expertise. One reason has to do with the intellectual hurdles that senior executives jump in obtaining their jobs. It takes at least an IQ of about 110 to 120 to get an advanced degree such as an MBA. There is thus a high selection pressure for IQ in order to enter the executive ranks and relatively little variation in IQ among those who are in those ranks. On the other hand, there is little or no systematic selection pressure when it comes to emotional intelligence, and so there is a much wider range of variation among executives. That lets superiority in these capabilities count far more than IQ when it comes to star leadership performance. While the precise ratio of EI to cognitive abilities depends on how each are measured, and on the unique demands of a given organization, our rule of thumb holds that EI contributes 80 to 90% of the competencies that distinguish outstanding from average leaders, and sometimes more. To be sure, purely cognitive competencies such as technical expertise surface in such studies, but often as threshold abilities, the skills people need simply to do an average job. Although the specifics vary from organization to organization, EI competencies make up the vast majority of the more crucial distinguishing competencies. Even so, when those specific competencies are weighted for their contribution, the cognitive competencies can sometimes have quite significant input too, depending on the specific competence model involved. To get an idea of the practical business implications of these competencies, consider an analysis of the partner's contribution to the profits of a large accounting firm. If the partner had significant strengths in the self-management competencies, he or she added 78% more incremental profit than did partners without those strengths. Likewise, the added profits for partners with strengths in social skills were 110% greater, and those with strengths in the self-management competencies added a whopping 390% incremental profit, in this case $1,465,000 more per year. By contrast, significant strengths in analytic reasoning abilities added just 50% more profit. Thus, purely cognitive abilities help, but the EI competencies 
help far more. Just what the many faces of primal leadership look like has become evident to us as we've talked with hundreds of executives, managers, and workers at companies and organizations around the world. We have encountered resonant leaders in organizations of every sort and at all levels. Some have no official leadership position, yet step forward to lead as needed, then fade back until another right moment arrives. Others head a team or an entire company, guide a startup, catalyze change in their organization, or nimbly split away to start their own renegade venture. We'll share stories of many such leaders, some of whom we name, while others who spoke to us in confidence we have disguised. And we've confirmed these personal observations with data on thousands of leaders. We've been able to reap a rich harvest of data from other sources. Colleagues at the research arm of the Hay Group have shared with us two decades of analyses of leadership effectiveness done for their clients globally. In recent years, an expanding network of academic researchers has been gathering data with the ECI 360, our measure of the key emotional intelligence competencies for leadership. And from many other centers of research, the body of findings and theory on emotional intelligence and leadership has been growing steadily. From all these sources, we've drawn answers to telling questions about primal leadership. What emotional resources do leaders need to thrive amidst chaos and turbulent change? What gives a leader the inner strength to be honest about even painful truths? What enables a leader to inspire others to do their best work and to stay loyal when other jobs beckon? How do leaders create an emotional climate that fosters creative innovations, all-out performance, or warm and lasting customer relationships? For too long, managers have seen emotions at work as noise, cluttering the rational operation of organizations. But the time for ignoring emotions as irrelevant to business has passed. What organizations everywhere need now is to realize the benefits of primal leadership by cultivating leaders who generate the emotional resonance that lets people flourish. Take, for example, the horrific catastrophe in New York, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania on September 11, 2001, which occurred in the final days of writing this program. That calamity underscores the essential role of emotional leadership, particularly in moments of human tragedy and crisis. And it brings home the point that resonance goes beyond positivity to cover the range of emotions. Consider Mark Lair, CEO of Soundview Technology, a technology brokerage in Connecticut. A handful of friends, colleagues, and family members of people there were lost in the tragedy. Lair's first response was to invite all employees to come to the office the next day, not to work, but to share their feelings and talk over what to do. Over the following days, Lair was there as people wept together and he urged people to talk about what they were going through. Every night at 9.45, he sent out an email to the entire company about the personal side of the ongoing events. Lair went a step further, encouraging and guiding a discussion of how to find meaning in the chaos through an action they could all participate in to help out. Rather than just making a group donation, they decided to donate their company's proceeds from one day of trading to those victimized by the tragedy. On an average day, that might be more than half a million dollars. The most they had made in a day was around one million. But as they spread the word of what they wanted to do to their clients, it inspired an amazing response. They raised more than six million dollars that day. 
To continue the healing process, Lair also asked employees to compile a memory book to record their thoughts, fears, and hopes, which could be shared with future generations. There was an outpouring of emails with poems, moving stories, reflections, people speaking from their hearts. In such a grave crisis, all eyes turned to the leader for emotional guidance. Because the leader's way of seeing things has special weight, leaders manage meaning for a group, offering a way to interpret or make sense of and so react emotionally to a given situation. Mark Lair courageously performed one of the most crucial emotional tasks of leadership. He helped himself and his people find meaning and sense, even in the face of chaos and madness. To do so, he first attuned to and expressed the shared emotional reality, so that the direction he eventually articulated resonated at the gut level, putting into words what everyone was feeling in their hearts. What would our lives look like if the organizations where we spend our working days were naturally places of resonance with leaders who inspired us? In most parts of the developing world, best practices for business have not yet formed. Imagine what an organization would be like if these concepts of resonant leadership were founding principles rather than, as is usually the case in highly developed settings, a corrective. Then, from the start, hiring would focus on recruiting those with the EI skills for leadership, as would promotions and development. Ongoing learning for these leadership skills would be part of everyday operations and the entire organization would be a place where people flourished by working together. And then, what if we brought these qualities home to our marriages, families, children, and communities? Very often, when we work with leaders to help them cultivate a greater range or depth in emotional intelligence competencies, they tell us that the payoff for them has been not just in their work as leaders, but in their personal and family lives as well. They find themselves bringing home heightened levels of self-awareness and empathic understanding, self-mastery, and attuned relationships. Let's take that a step further. What would our schools and children be like if education also included those emotional intelligence abilities that foster resonance? For one thing, employers of every kind would have the pleasure of taking into their ranks new generations of leaders-to-be who were already adept at these key work skills. The personal benefits for young people themselves would also be reflected in a decline in those social ills ranging from violence to substance abuse that stem in large part from deficits in skills such as handling impulses and rocky emotions. Beyond that, communities would benefit from higher levels of tolerance, caring, and personal responsibility. Given that employers themselves are looking for these capacities in those they hire, colleges and professional schools, particularly business schools, should be including the basics of emotional intelligence in the skill sets they offer. As Erasmus, the great Renaissance thinker, reminds us, the best hope of a nation lies in the proper education of its youth. The most innovative business educators will, we hope, recognize the importance of emotional intelligence in higher education for helping their graduates become leaders instead of mere managers. The most forward-thinking business people will encourage and support such business education, not just for added leadership strength in their own organizations, but for the vitality of an entire economy. And the benefits will accrue not just for a new generation of leaders, but for our families, communities, and society as a whole. One final note. There are many leaders, not just one. Leadership is distributed. 
It resides not solely in the individual at the top, but in every person at every level who, in one way or another, acts as a leader to a group of followers. Wherever in the organization that person is, whether shop steward, team head, or CEO. We offer these insights to leaders, wherever they may be. Part 1. The Power of Emotional Intelligence Chapter 1. Primal Leadership Great leaders move us. They ignite our passion and inspire the best in us. When we try to explain why they are so effective, we speak of strategy, vision, or powerful ideas. But the reality is much more primal. Great leadership works through the emotions. No matter what leaders set out to do, whether it's creating strategy or mobilizing teams to action, their success depends on how they do it. Even if they get everything else just right, if leaders fail in this primal task of driving emotions in the right direction, nothing they do will work as well as it could or should. Consider, for example, a pivotal moment in a news division at the BBC, the British media giant. The division had been set up as an experiment, and while its 200 or so journalists and editors felt they had given their best, management had decided the division would have to close. It didn't help, but the executive sent to deliver the decision to the assembled staff started off with a glowing account of how well rival operations were doing, and that he had just returned from a wonderful trip to Cannes. The news itself was bad enough, but the brusque, even contentious manner of the executive incited something beyond the expected frustration. People became enraged, not just at the management decision, but also at the bearer of the news himself. The atmosphere became so threatening, in fact, that it looked as though the executive might have to call security to usher him safely from the room. The next day, another executive visited the same staff. He took a very different approach. He spoke from his heart about the crucial importance of journalism to the vibrancy of a society and of the calling that had drawn them all to the field in the first place. He reminded them that no one goes into journalism to get rich. As a profession, its finances have always been marginal, with job security ebbing and flowing with larger economic tides. And he invoked the passion, even the dedication, the journalists had for the service they offered. Finally, he wished them all well in getting on with their careers. When this leader finished speaking, the staff cheered. The difference between the leaders lay in the mood and tone with which they delivered their messages. One drove the group toward antagonism and hostility, the other toward optimism, even inspiration in the face of difficulty.